Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. This model for agriculture is not a new idea. This is a very, very old idea. This is the way we've always been doing it. It hasn't been since the Industrial Revolution, and we've industrialized our agricultural systems that we've gotten this new model of agriculture, this very intensive model of agriculture. But what we're doing is proposing that we go back to our roots with food, but instead now we have technology to coordinate that and make it more efficient. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. If your idea of shopping local is buying your produce from the farmer's market in town, then today's guest wants you to think a whole lot smaller. He'll explain how shopping small can have big benefits for you and the planet. Today, we're exploring the benefits of hyper-local agriculture, as in your neighbor down the street local. I'm chatting with Zach Correa, founder and CEO of Lemongraft, G-R-A-F-T. The Tampa-based tech platform allows neighbors to buy and sell homegrown foods. And Zach's idea has been getting a lot of attention lately. Last year, he scored a fellowship with NPR's How I Built This podcast. And you may have also heard Zach back in July chatting with my colleague Matthew Petty on WUSF's public affairs program, Florida Matters. In this conversation, Zach explains how Lemongraft works and how buying local can lead to a more sustainable and equitable food system for us all. My background is in architecture, and um, I really am just passionate about um, sustainable communities, to, to, uh, designing for small, sustainable communities. And um, what I realized in that in that uh, journey is that we need a sustainable food system. And that's really the first infrastructure that needs to be laid down because we can't really have sustainable communities until we lay down sustainable infrastructures. And so went looking for a sustainable food system that met all the criteria that I thought it needed to meet. I couldn't find one. And so that's kind of where Lemongraft was, was born. Um, and the idea behind Lemongraft is it's a decentralized supply chain for local agriculture. So it allows everyone in the community to be able to participate in the food system, really opening up the market, removing all barriers to enter, kind of like Airbnb or Uber, like what they did for their respective markets, right? Like before Airbnb, you couldn't just be a, like a landlord. Like it was a lot of barriers to participate in that marketplace. And the same with taxi driving, you, you know, before Uber, you couldn't like just drive people around for, for work. And Lemongraft, we see that kind of similarly where we're asking people like, hey, do you have a backyard? You know, you can be a farmer. There's a minimum barrier to enter now. So what were some of the criteria that you didn't find when you looked elsewhere before starting Lemongraft? A couple of things is it had to be scalable. Um, one of the things that we saw was that um, in order to solve a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the world, um, a sustainable food system needs to be available to the entire world, probably in like five years. At the time, it was like five to 10 years, but that was before COVID. Um, now I'm looking at <laughs> things seem to have accelerated. 
we needed a system that could that was scalable, a structure that could um, adapt to different cultures, adapt to different geographies, and really be a system that could be adopted by any community around the world and, and scale fast. Um, and so I just couldn't I couldn't find anything like that. Uh, sustainability intrinsically, it, it's not independent. It's not self-sustainability. I hear I hear this word self-sustainability a lot. And I think that's kind of an oxymoron because if you look at ecosystems and you look at, at biological systems and nature, and nothing is is independent, like autonomous in and of itself. Like our world is built upon networks, like elaborate networks of interdependencies. And so true sustainability, I believe, is a network of interdependencies. And the, another word for that is just community. And so what I believe to be true is that if we are to have a sustainable food system or any sustainable system, it has to be a community-based food system. And I didn't see a community-based food system out there. Do you think this is a particularly American problem? I know food sustainability is a global issue, but you talked about the importance of community. And when I think of things like healthcare, childcare, Americans, we do it on our own. So are there lessons to be learned from other parts of the world? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, ultimately this, this model for agriculture is not a new idea. This is a a very, very old idea. This is the way we've always been doing it. It hasn't been since the industrial revolution and we've industrialized our agricultural systems that um, that we've gotten this new model of agriculture, this very intensive model of agriculture. Um, but what we're doing is proposing that we go back to our roots with food, uh, but instead now we have technology to coordinate that and make it more efficient. So I think that this is the missing link that we need in order to have urban agricultural systems uh, because f- fundamentally what Lemongraft is doing is we're not providing anything. The way we see it is that uh, we want to stitch together all these little scraps of of land in urban and suburban communities. We want to stitch that all together to create a quilt-like fabric for the future of the agricultural landscape. But lemongraft, that means that lemongraft is just the thread. We're not the actual fabric, right? The fabric is made up of the community. So mo- the majority of lemongraft is actually the community. It's not us. It's We're just the coordination component bringing it together. And what I, what I found is that other cultures they're much more prepared to handle this idea because they're already doing this in in small scales in pockets you know around the world um i will also mention that the us is very much um insulated from a lot of the effects uh the negative effects that come from not having a sustainable food system but when i speak to people and communities uh in other places in other countries it's right in their face that you know their their food system is uh, broken and they cannot access food in a safe and effective way. There are people in the middle that are rising up. There's mafias that are you know like uh, that are they're forming around food, um, and that's really just the result of a broken system. And so there, uh, when I talk to people in other countries about lemongrass, they um, their perspective on it is like we need this like this has to happen like we have to have something because our food system is broken in the us it's more of just like a good idea it's like oh this is really this would be awesome this would be so cool and and trendy um and that's fine too but um i think eventually we will um we will experience more viscerally we'll experience the uh, the the negative effects um of of continuing down this this unsustainable path uh within our food system and uh, and it, it'll it'll hurt. I, I don't want that to happen. But um, I think that decentralizing the food system and creating a sustainable food system is not a good idea. It's it's just inevitable. It has to happen. So tell me what I'm not seeing. Tell me how 
the current food supply chain works? I know that's a huge question. And then tell me the effects that I'm not seeing. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny when, when, when I first started, um, I was like, oh, yeah, we need a sustainable food system. And and originally the, the idea was like, well, what happens if food just stops showing up at the grocery store? You know, and this is before COVID. And then, and then during COVID, we started seeing that food was not showing up at the grocery store because because it was a result of and 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 I I don't think people should be confused about this. That wasn't caused by COVID. That was caused by a, a hyper engineered linear industrial food system. Okay, it was its weaknesses were being exposed. It can't take lateral forces. It can't. It doesn't do change very well. It's not non-linear, it's not decentralized, it's not going, it's not very resilient. You know, if there's an E. coli breakout in one place, it now E. coli is all over the world, right? Because that's the way our system works. It's not a very sustainable system. And so when, once COVID happened, um, and now with the war in Ukraine, like when these when these global events happen, it affects it, it affects the entire food system. So first, when, when we started coming up with this, this idea for lemon graft, you know, I had to kind of do a study. I was like, well, what What's the problem exactly? Like we have to identify like what the what the what is the question here? The majority of the problem is getting products to market. It's really expensive to bring a product to market through the current supply chain. So I asked myself, I said, well, why why is the supply chain designed the way it is? Right, because it's it is extraordinarily cumbersome. Um, there's no way that I could grow food and sell it through the to, through the current supply chain. Turns out that at the grocery store. Um, every dollar you spend at the grocery store, about 90% of that on average, st- statistically speaking, about 90% of that gets absorbed in the middle. Only 10 cents on every dollar goes to the farmers. Sometimes it might be 30 cents, you know, but generally speaking, the vast majority of the money that's spent on food is not, it does not go to the production of food. It goes to the distribution of food. And that just seems wrong. Um, and so I started looking at the supply chain and, and I was asking myself, like, well, why is it so? So like, this is an enormous system. This is a, like a beast of a system. Like, how did it become that way? And I think uh, maybe it was my architectural background, but I really focused in on, on development as what, what I identify as the source of, of, the, of the system. Um, and so what I found was that, you know, it used to be, like I said, it used to be that food, you'd source it from your neighbors in small scales. But what happens is, is, is development will run its course in areas that have people, right? Like we will develop. And usually what that means is a developer will come by. Uh, I'm responsible for this, you know, in part being an architect, right? A developer will come by, they'll say, hey, this is a great opportunity for a project. Let's buy this land. We'll, so they buy the land, or they parcel it out, it turn, you know, gets parceled out and then we put buildings on it. And so now the use of the land changes because it used to be food producing because that used to be an agricultural piece of land, but now it turns into uh, a developed piece of land. And so it can, and it can handle more um, inhabitants, but now it's, it's become food consuming. Um, so we kind of get a double whammy on both ends there. But what happens to the food production that used to be there? Because now it's not, not only do we still need that food production, we need more food production. Uh, well, what happens is that that agricultural land gets displaced. So it gets pushed away from the developed areas um, and not going, it doesn't get, you know, put to a different developed area. It gets put to a non-developed area. But what happens is, is that as it gets put into this non-developed areas, we now have food that is living in an unpoppulated area. And we have people who are living in in an area that that food is not growing, so now we have to connect those two dots, right? That's the, that's why the supply chain is is necessary, is because of development, because development inherently pushes agriculture further away. Now, does the supply chain need to look the way it does? Not necessarily, but here's the thing: is that because the supply chain is so expensive right now, 
the small, the same small mom and pop farm that used to be in the town, right, that was then pushed out, they can no longer survive living further away from the city. And the reason is, is because now the costs to overcome the, the barrier to enter that marketplace now, which the barrier is now the supply chain, the costs are so high that this small farm cannot afford to only keep half or only keep 30% of their sale. So what that means is that they end up going under, a bigger farm purchases them. You have consolidation after consolidation after consolidation. It turns into monopolization of the industry. Now we have monocultures. Now we have industrial agriculture. And the reason why we have it is not because we like want to do this. It's because this is what the system demands. The system demands big agriculture in order to reach the economies of scale necessary to overcome the hurdles of the supply chain. But this is all a result of the initial step, the first step we took of just saying, eh, we don't need this farm. Let's kick it out of the city and we'll, we'll develop something better. And so what we said is we said, well, this supply chain fundamentally, this barrier to enter the market is what's driving the industrial agricultural model. It's what's leading to a lot of the, the soil erosions and the, the, the like, I'm sure we already know, like we don't have to go into all the, all the issues with industrial agriculture, but it's what's leading to that. But the root cause I believe is in not having an, an effective supply chain for urbanized and suburban communities. And so that's fundamentally what Lemongraft is. We, we said, we don't want to build a system upon the centralized supply chain. We want to decentralize that supply chain and use, see what's left behind in the communities. And what we found is that there's all these little tiny scraps of land left behind in communities, people's backyards, apartments, balconies, the small urban farm that's left behind the remnant of the medium-sized farm on the edge. And we want to stitch all that together to create this new agricultural landscape that can support uh, urban and suburban communities. But that now allows agriculture to remain in the community even while it it develops and it grows, because we don't think we're going to stop development. But if we can do that, now food doesn't have to travel. So we remove all those barriers to participate in the market, and now everyone can participate at, at any scale and and still be profitable to some extent, right? Like I, I could even we even have people who are growing herbs and pots. So fundamentally, I would say the starting point is understanding the supply chain, understanding that uh, how that has come to play. And also just understanding that that's where the majority of your dollars go to is in the distribution, the, the bringing the product to market. And there aren't very, there aren't efficient ways really to bring products to market. And that's what we're trying to, to do. So that's the first oh. step. Support for the Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. So let's talk about the difference in a model like Lemongraft. So I actually do have raised beds right outside my window here, and oh. I have a ton of basil. It's probably three feet tall. There's only so much pesto I can make. So how would I get that to my neighbors? And then how would I make money off of that? Um, okay, so so um, on a, in a system like Lemongraft, we found that the smallest number of rolls uh, necessary to make the system work would be three, three rolls. So that's what we decided on. We have three rolls on Lemon Graph. You can sign up and you can be a buyer or you could be a host or you could be a grower um, or really any combination of those three. We have people who are all three rolls on the platform. And so what the, the, the buyer does is pretty simple. They go on the website, they shop in all their neighbor's backyards, see what everyone's growing, and then they add it to their cart. You, you check out and you go to pick up your your, your order. Where do you pick it up though? You, you pick it up at host locations. And that's really where you shop through is you shop through host locations. Uh, so what a host is, is there someone in the community, anyone really who just says, hey, I have a venue. I have, I have some sort of location 
And growers can digitally list their products through my like digital storefront on Lemongraph, but it's also a physical place, right? So you can digitally list your products, buyers digitally purchase those products. And then once those sales are made, then my storefront will physically manifest. It'll like become real, like, hey, I'll be here. Growers can bring the products that they sold. So that's a key difference, right? Is that you've already sold products whenever you're bringing it to market. Um, and that's a very important part to maintain efficiencies. Uh, so growers are dropping off products that they've, that they've pre-sold. Uh, they give it to the host. The host acts as a verification point to make sure that the product is actually real, right? Uh, so the hosts receive the products. They approve it. The money gets transferred over to the grower. So that's when the grower gets paid. The host then takes those products in from dozens of different growers, you know, who are dropping off and selling through their location. They drop off products. The host receives it. And then as a host, I, I put it in bags for the buyer. So then the buyer comes and picks up. And they say, hey, I'm John. You know, I'm going to pick up my, my order. And I say, oh, great. And I, I give John his order. And then Dahlia, you you come by and you're like, hey, Zach, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up my order. I, I grab your bag and I hand it to you. So it's kind of, you know, the function is similar to like a, like a grocery store, um, like a, like a cash, like a, like someone who's in the checkout line, you know, like getting the products on the conveyor belt, putting them in a bag and handing them to the buyer. Similar. And so what hosts do is they, they get a percentage off of all the sales that go through their location as a grower. Now, the, the efficiencies here with the, with the growers that like, I don't have to bring any products to market that I didn't already sell. I can look in my field. I can say, it looks like I have about this much to harvest this week. Uh, I list, you know, I'm, I have 25 pounds of carrots that I might harvest. Or if you have a few raised beds, you might say, I have about 10 bundles of herbs, you know, that I can harvest this, this week. Uh, you post that. And then as people buy it, you then get the, um, you get the notification. You say, Hey, I'll pick up or I'll harvest those herbs on the market day. I bring them to the host. I get paid. And then I go home. So the time savings is what's really effective. And the fact that you're not harvesting more um, than, and you're not bringing to market more than has already been sold, that also means that there's zero waste at the storefront level, which currently accounts for, for a large number. Uh, I can, we can get into food waste if you'd like to, but, but um, there, it, it drops to zero from like $57 billion worth of food wasted at current retail markets that goes down to zero with our system because nothing is at the market that hasn't already been sold. I love that. So I'm not cutting all my basil, taking it to the St. Pete Saturday morning market, sitting there all day and maybe selling it, maybe not. It's already sold. Yeah. A neighbor of mine about a mile away um, has eggs and local honey that he sells and it's on the honors system. So there's a box and you just put your cash in the box and take your dozen eggs or take your honey. So this feels close to that which I love. Yeah. It, it feels like you're you're really getting to know your neighbors. I mean, I could talk to you all day, um, but what communities are you in currently? And do you have any idea of how many participants there are? Yeah. Uh, at the moment, we have about 900 members on the platform. We're in the process of launching um, pilot communities in uh, in Tampa. Um, there's one that's currently existing in downtown Tampa at Meacham Urban Farm. Uh, we have another one up in uh, that's starting in upstate New York. Um, and another one in Chicago that's starting, in Nashville area that's starting, and in Boulder, Colorado that's starting. So, so that's kind of the the places that we found some people who are adopting this. But honestly, this can happen anywhere. Like that, like it doesn't require us to give permission. And that was the whole point. Like we didn't want the like in order to have a truly sustainable food system, the people in any community should have the authority to be able to to rise up and say, "Hey, I want this," and then assume the roles that are needed and, and make a food system for themselves. And finally, 
it can happen anywhere if the people rise up. But why do you think Florida in particular is a good place for this movement? Florida is interesting. Um, the season in Florida is like the opposite of everywhere else. I think that Florida is a really great place to to launch a platform like Lemongraph because you can grow like everything. You can grow everything here. It's just, and I think that once we start to get in the mindset of tr- of that, we we are in the trop like the subtropics or the tropics, depending on what part of Florida you're in. Once we start getting into this mindset and realizing that summertime doesn't mean that growing the growing season ends, summertime means you have all these tropical fruit, fruits and you have perennials. And I think if we start to look more towards you know permaculture and um, more regenerative agricultural practices, uh, looking at perennials and fruit trees and and um, you know a lot of, there's a lot of crops out there, a lot of native edible plants that maybe you're not familiar with that are that are that are totally totally growing all all year long in Florida. And I think that that really gives Florida an edge on other places that um, that their, their season has a hard stop, you know, once you, once you hit the winter time. Um, so I think Florida is a great place. And I think that people in Florida are really passionate about their food and about, um, about growing things, especially since COVID people are growing things like crazy. Um, and it's easy. It's, it, it is, it really is. It's not hard. I know that people, sometimes they think that they, they, they don't have a green thumb, but, uh, I think that just try try it out, start simple, Try just something, just one thing, you know, and uh, and just read about it. Watch a little video about it and you'll find that like like it's very rewarding. And I think I'm finding that more and more people, especially in Florida, are discovering that connection with the earth and with their plants. And uh, and there's a sense of caring for, you know, a plant that just it feels there's something very fulfilling about it. And when you have the opportunity to share that with your neighbors, there's there's nothing that I found really that that, you know, physically that can bring people closer, you know, than like food and it's historically, you know, significant, right? Ultimately, um, a truly sustainable system cannot come from the top down inherently like, like it, it just cannot. And the reason why is because if it did, it would be a a centralized system and a truly sustainable system has to be decentralized. It has to be nonlinear. It has to be community-based, which means it has to be a grassroots movement. And so with Lemongraft, I mean, we've built a tool that communities can use now to, to, to have a sustainable food system, but it, but now it's up to them, really. I mean, like it's, it's up to the people to decide, do we want this? Are we willing to take a stand and take food back into our own hands and, and, you know, heal the soil, create more biodiversity, heal the environment, heal our, our, our gut, heal, heal, you know, increase nutrient density of our foods. Are, do we want this? Because it's going to take action from the community. And, and, and that's, you know, it's uh, some people thought that, you know, the way that we structured our, our system was a bad idea because it's inherently dependent on the community. But fundamentally, I think that that's that's the way it has to be if we're going to really attain sustainability. And so we see ourselves as partnering with with you out there in the community. Right. Um, and so we've we've built it and we're going to continue to to charge forward. But we need we really need partnerships with people out there in the world who are passionate about this and who want this, who are willing to take a stand and, and, and take action. Um, and we'll be there to help every step of the way. But it really is up to the community. OK, fantastic. Well, Zach, thank you so much for your time. I really learned a lot. And um, maybe I can get rid of some of this basil. <laughs> That was Zach Correa of Lemongraft, again, G-R-A-F-T. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. We get help from Chandler Balcom, Hannah Abdel-Majid, John Vargas, and Mark Hayes. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2022.